They say love is blind, but it's trauma that's blind. Love sees what is. From Neil Strauss in his book, The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships. They say love is blind, but it's trauma that's blind. Love sees what is. Neil Strauss is right on that. Love connects us with reality. Love connects us with God, who is the ultimate realness, the ultimate being, the I am. And trauma, trauma is blind and it blinds us. That's what we're talking about today. Trauma and its impact on love. Dear listener, you and I are together in the adventure of this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. We are journeying together. I am grateful to be with you. I'm Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic. And let's ask this question again. Why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we here together? We are here together to bring you the best of psychology and human formation and to harmonize it with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. Why? So we can have the best of both. That's why. Today, we're going to take a broad perspective, a bird's eye view of trauma's destructive consequences to our capacity to love. What is the effect of trauma on our capacity to love, on our inclination to love? That's the question that we are exploring together today in episode 95 of Interior Integration for Catholics. This episode, episode 95, is called Trauma's Devastating Impact on Our Capacity to Love. It's released on July 4th, 2022, Independence Day in the USA. This podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, which brings you the best of psychology and human formation grounded in a Catholic worldview. That's at our website, soulsandhearts.com. Let's step back a minute and review. We are in the midst of a whole series of episodes on trauma. Just a brief thumbnail review, if you just happen to be joining us for this episode, this series of episodes on trauma started with episode 88, called Trauma, Defining and Understanding the Experience. It's really important to understand the inner experience of trauma so you can recognize it in your own life and recognize it in an empathetic and attuned way in others' lives as well. That is part of loving them. Then we moved on to episode 89, which was called Your Trauma, Your Body, Protection versus Connection. And that gave us a much better understanding of how large a role, of how major a role our bodies play in our experience of trauma. It's all about our bodies, and we brought in a lot of polyvagal theory in that episode. Then in episode 90, which was called Your Well-Being, the Secular Experts Speak, we reviewed how philosophers from ancient days all the way to modern secular psychologists understand mental health and well-being. 
We looked at attempts to define what makes us happy from the 4th century BC to the present day, looking at works from Aristippus, Aristotle, Descartes, Freud, Seligman, Porges, Schwartz, as well as two diagnostic systems, the DSM and the PDM. We took a special look at how positive psychology and internal family systems see well-being as well. Then we skipped to episode 92, which was all about interpersonal neurobiology. That was developed by neuropsychiatrist Dan Siegel. That episode was called Understanding and Healing Your Mind Through IPNB, Interpersonal Neurobiology, and it was all about what IPNB can tell us about psychological health. We looked at the characteristics of a healthy mind and how it functions, and two reliable signs that suggest psychological symptoms and mental dysfunction. We also discussed nine domains of integration in that episode. Then in episode 93, we did three inner experiential exercises so that you could really dive into this in an experiential way, this whole series on trauma. And then last episode, episode 94, the primacy of love. In that episode, I discussed the central importance of love as the marker of emotional and psychological well-being from a Catholic perspective, our capacity to love, our capacity to live out the two great commandments. And we explored how love is the distinguishing characteristic of Christians. And then we looked at Catholic theologian Bernard Brady's five attributes or characteristics of love. How love is affective or emotional, affirming, responsive, unitive, and steadfast. And then we also discussed what's commonly missing from philosophical and theological approaches to love. And we talked about the death of love and distortions of love. So if you haven't checked those out, when you have time, please do. This episode will stand alone, but it's also really, really good for you to listen to it in the context of the other episodes. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to have that bird's eye view. We're going to be addressing love in general, focusing on loving and being loved. In future episodes, we're going to review tolerating being loved. And we're also going to look at ordered self-love. We're going to discuss how the experience of trauma distorts our loves. It distorts where we go to find the good. It messes with how we seek to have our needs met, how we seek to be loved, and how we seek to love. St. Augustine, he said, quote, He lives in justice and sanctity, who is an unprejudiced assessor of the intrinsic value of things. He is a man who has an ordinate love. He neither loves what should not be loved, nor fails to love what should be loved. That's from On Christian Doctrine, Book 1, Chapter 27. St. Augustine is saying that if we are to live in justice and if we're living in justice and sanctity, we're, our love is ordered. We're loving the right things in the right way at the right time to the right degree. And we need this ordered love. Why? Because as Bernard Brady put it, we become like what we love. Whatever we embrace in our love, we become like that person or that thing. In St. Augustine, this was a major concern for him. In his book, Confessions, he wrote, quote, I loved beautiful things of a, of a lower order, and I was going down to the depths. Those beautiful things that St. Augustine was loving were dragging him down, were taking him away from God. And so much of the problem 
with disordered love, which is another way of describing sin, sin as disordered love, so much of the problem with disordered love comes from the misdirected seeking to get your attachment needs met. That is so often the problem. We have these legitimate attachment needs. And trauma, it strips away our sense of feeling safe and secure. It, it leads us to feel that we're not seen, heard, known, and understood. It prevents us from feeling comforted, soothed, and reassured. It takes that away. It, it leads us to not feel cherished or treasured or delighted in. And it also teaches us, at least it feels like it teaches us, that the world is not a safe place, that others are not going to love me and will my highest good. Those are all from Brown and Elliot from their 2016 book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults. Those are the five primary attachment needs. And so this leads us to the question, where do we seek our safety and security? In both the natural and the spiritual realms, we find authentic safety and security in our attachment needs being met. So let's go through these five primary attachment needs once more, just to review them. There are things, they're really important in this podcast. I bring them up a lot. So you've heard this before. Bear with me as we repeat it again. The five primary attachment needs. The first is a felt sense of safety and protection, a deep felt sense of security, feeling it in my bones. It's not enough for there to be actual physical or emotional or spiritual safety. I've got to be able to feel it. That's a different thing. It makes it so much easier to love. It increases our capacity to love when we feel safe and secure. And Algis Boudris, who is an American writer in the book, Some Will Not Die in 1961, said, quote, people want to be safe and comfortable. If safety, if safety and comfort is to be found in guns, then they will take up guns of their own accord in their own need. And when safety and comfort are found in libraries, then the guns rust. End quote. That captures that safety and security are such a driving force, even if we're not realizing that that's what we're doing. Right? A felt sense of safety and protection. Also, feeling seen, heard, known, and understood. That's the second primary attachment security need. Catherine Mansfield, she said, I want by understanding myself to understand others. We need to be seen, heard, known, and understood. And not just to be seen, heard, known, and understood, but to feel it. Again, that's a different thing. Sometimes a parent, for example, of a young child could understand very well what's going on, can see the child, hear the child, but the child is so caught up in this tantrum or this extreme distress that the child doesn't even know the parent is there. That can happen within us. People can be attending to us. People can be understanding how we're doing far more than we realize because we are so wrapped up in our own experience. The third is to be comforted, soothed, and reassured, right? In a way that's attuned to us. We need that. We need to be comforted, 
reassured and soothed, no matter what our age is, no matter where we are in terms of our developmental trajectory. We all need that. Then we need to feel valued, cherished, treasured, and delighted in. This reminds me of the song by Jimmy Davis and Charles Mitchell uh, from 1940, You Are My Sunshine, right? The chorus of that goes, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. I'm not going to sing it because of copyright laws. That's really true. I would sing it. You, know, you, you might not believe that, but I actually would sing it. Those that know me know how frequently I break into song. But I am also sensitive. I have a part that's very much about playing by the rules when it comes to copyright. And so I'm not going to sing it. But you know, you all know the song, right? This is about feeling valued, cherished, treasured, delighted in. Not just being treasured and delighted in, but feeling treasured and delighted in. And then the fifth primary attachment need is to feel that the other person wills my highest good, to feel that the other person wants what's best for me. So those are the the five primary attachment security needs. My argument is that so many of our problems, so much of our sinning, so much of our missing the mark, getting off track, so much of our disordered love is is a maladaptive attempt to try to get one or more of these primary security needs met, these attachment needs met. It's really interesting that Etienne Gilson explained St. Augustine's approach to God as, quote, a path leading from the exterior to the interior and from the interior to the superior, end quote. That was in his book, The Christian Philosophy of St. Augustine on page 20. We can't avoid going inside, according to St. Augustine. We have to go inside. And Charles Taylor, in his book, Sources of the Self, said, by going inward, I am drawn upward. So Bernard Brady summarizes this as turning inward is the route to God, but it's not God himself. This turning inward is often resisted by Catholics as being selfish. I'm supposed to die to myself, Dr. Peter. You hear this, you know, I don't want to spend time on some sort of psychological navel gazing, all this selfishness, all this self-focus. I'm supposed to be loving, right? But inside the person is experiencing a civil war, multiple factions battling inside. You're not going to be able to forget yourself. You're not going to be able to die to yourself if there is so much internal contention among your parts. Just not going to happen. You are not able in the long run to white knuckle it through that and just live by willpower alone, white knuckling it from one act of charity to another act of charity and just keeping all of that from affecting you. You don't have the strength for that. We actually need to have that internal order We need to be able to possess a virtue, not just practice a virtue. But when you possess a virtue, it comes naturally. It's like second nature. And that's why this ordering is so important because we have limited willpower. 
And if we use that willpower to get ourselves in order so that the, the underlying disorder and disruption in ourselves doesn't impact us so much, we are so far ahead of the game than if we just use our willpower to play whack-a-mole with the different things that are coming into our conscious awareness that distress us or that cause us discomfort. Edward Vasek, in his book, Love, Human, and Divine, The Heart of Christian Ethics, describes the steps in loving and being loved. First, God affirms us. That's first. God affirms us. God reaches out to us. Second, God receives us. Third, we accept God's love. We're not loving at this point, actually. Look at those first three steps. God first affirms us. God then receives us. Then we accept God's love. Then we affirm God, and then God forms community with us. We're now in relationship. And then we cooperate with God in loving God in the world. And then we grow in a limited co-responsibility with God. That's on page 177. We need to get the order right here. We love because he first loved us. It's from first letter of John chapter four, verse 19. Now, in the last episode, we went through Bernard Brady's description of the five characteristics of love. That's from his book, Christian Love, How Christians Through the Ages Have Understood Love. That was from 2003. And in this section, Bernard Brady draws heavily from phenomenologists, the Jesuit Jules Toner, and also Margaret Farley. So, the five characteristics of love, again, we went into these in a lot more detail in episode 94, the last episode. But love is affective, that means it's emotional. Love is affirming, love is responsive, love is unitive, and love is steadfast. Affective, affirming, responsive, unitive, and steadfast. Five aspects, those five aspects. Love is affective or emotional, love is affirming, love is responsive, love is unitive, and steadfast. Now, we're going to briefly review each of them, and then, and this is, this is really critical, and then we're going to discuss how trauma impacts each of those five characteristics of love. We're going to bring in the effects of trauma, the sequelae of trauma from episode 88. In episode 88, trauma, defining and understanding the experience, I brought in from so many sources all kinds of symptoms of trauma, all kinds of experiences that indicate that there's unresolved trauma inside. And we're going to look at how those symptoms impact our capacity to love, impact our our inclination to love. All right, so love is affective. What do we mean by that? Well, love is an emotion. Love is a movement from your heart or your soul, a movement from the innermost depths of your being. That's St. Augustine, that's St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa said, quote, consequently the freezing or hardening of the heart is a disposition incompatible with love, while melting denotes a softening of the heart, whereby the heart shows itself to be ready for the entrance of the beloved. Love rejoices in the beloved. Protestant theologian R.H. Niebuhr wrote that in his 1977 book. 
He said, by love, we mean at least these attitudes and actions, rejoicing in the presence of the beloved, gratitude, reverence, and loyalty toward him. Love involves the heart, not a frozen heart or a hardened heart, but a softened heart. What happens with trauma? Well, Judith Herman in her book, Trauma and Recovery, says that, quote, after a traumatic experience, the human system of self-preservation seems to go into permanent alert as if the danger might return at any moment, end quote. When there's unresolved trauma, when the experience of trauma is still redounding in the, the, the person and it's not resolved, we're still on alert. At, at least parts of us are on alert. And it makes it far more difficult to resonate emotionally, to connect emotionally in love. We talked about this a lot in episode 89 when we talked about connection versus protection, right? After trauma, our system goes into protection. And that's not just in the psyche, it's also in the body. We close off to being vulnerable. And that's when Brene Brown, when she says, staying vulnerable is a risk we have to take if we want to experience connection. We can't have connection at a deep level without vulnerability. And if we get vulnerable, there's a good chance that we're going to get hurt. Can we bear that? And when there's been trauma, the answer is often a resounding no. I can't bear that. Bernard Brady discussed how, quote, love is the directive and dominant center of emotions, end quote. And many, many emotions are associated with love. We talked about this in the last episode. Delight, bliss, happiness, a sense of fulfillment, warmth. But also, on the other hand, grief, sadness, anxiety, distress. This is the critical point. If there's no emotion, there is no agape. There's no love. The heart must be moved for love to be anything like complete. We cannot love like some kind of Star Trek Vulcan, right? Like Mr. Spock without any emotion. Carl Jaspers, a German psychiatrist and philosopher, said, quote, even the most elevated psychological understanding is not a loving understanding, right? If it's just a dry psychological understanding, there's no emotion there. We need the emotion. We need to love with our whole heart, not just with our mind, not just with our strength, not just with our soul, but with our heart and with our whole heart. So what happens in trauma? Well, if we go back to episode 88, if we go back to the, the long list of, of effects of trauma, we see emotional overwhelm, we see shock, we see guilt, we see irritability and rage, we see anxiety, we see fear, panic attacks, phobias, we see the fears of trauma repeating, we see sadness and depression and mood swings and hopelessness and despair and emotional constriction and shutting down. We see difficulty experiencing positive emotions. We see anhedonia. What is anhedonia? 
That's the inability to experience positive emotions. Trauma cripples us emotionally. We move into self-protection. We move away from connection. We guard ourselves. We brace ourselves. We look at others as threats. That's the effect of trauma. It shuts us down. And whether we want it to or not, whether we intend it or not, there's a freezing or a hardening of the heart. That self-protection, that moving away from others, that guarding ourselves, that is a freezing or hardening of the heart. It's an effect of trauma. Now, it's not an inevitable effect of experiencing some really bad life circumstances. Remember, when we define trauma, we're not talking about the event. We're talking about the internal reaction to the event and how we play that out inside. It is not the plane crash or the rape or the famine or the divorce. It's not that. That's not the trauma. That's the event sometimes called the traumatic event, the trauma is the reaction. What does it do to our hearts? Because how we handle that and what our response is, is going to tell us so much about what's going to happen to our capacity to love, what's going to happen to our inclination to love. If we say, never again will I trust, if there's been a bad romantic breakup, never again will I trust, or I'm not going to believe that God exists and that he loves me. We're in a very, very difficult place. Our hearts are getting hardened. And we don't just decide to harden our hearts just for no reason. It's not like I say, huh, things are going really well. I think I'm going to harden my heart. And it doesn't work like that. You know that. So that's the emotional impact of trauma. Let's talk about the cognitive impacts of trauma and how that affects our emotions and our hearts, right? What is the impact on sensation and perception and higher order thinking of trauma? I'm just going to point out a couple of things. One is alexithymia. This is the inability to recognize or to describe one's own emotions. It's basically saying, I can't put my feelings into words. Or if I can't put my feelings into words, it's really hard for me to think about them. And if I can't put my feelings into words, the feelings in others could be overwhelming. I can't recognize what others are feeling if I can't recognize what I'm feeling. I can't express my feelings well, and that makes it hard to connect emotionally. So the alexithymia that can come from trauma really impacts our capacity to love. And there's so much confusion and distraction that comes with trauma spacing out with dissociation. What do you think the effect of that is? If you're trying to connect with somebody emotionally in a loving relationship, it's going to get in the way at a minimum. Behavioral symptoms of trauma, relational apathy, social withdrawal, disconnection, and existential symptoms of trauma, despair about humanity that gets overgeneralized. It gets generalized to the other person, right? Despair or disgust or disconnection, cynicism, disillusionment, and then identity issues. We're going to come back to this theme of shame a lot. 
if I'm really struggling with shame being activated because of unresolved trauma, I might believe that I'm not worth you connecting emotionally with me. Like, what could I ever offer you emotionally if I am overwhelmed with shame, if I feel like I'm totally inadequate, unworthy, not worth it, if I'm bad, if I'm unlovable, what, how am I going to be able to connect with you emotionally in a way that's good for both of us? So there's a review, a high-level review of how trauma can affect the affective or emotional component of love. That's the first of the five. Remember those five? Love is affective, love is affirming, love is responsive, love is unitive, love is steadfast. Let's go on to the next one. Love is affirming. Love affirms the other person. Love says yes to the other person at the same time as love says yes to oneself. It's not a yes to you and a no to me if I'm trying to love you or if you're trying to love me. It's two yeses, not a yes and a no, not a no and a no, two yeses. Yes to me, yes to you. Bernard Brady says, quote, agape is the simple yet profound recognition of the worthiness of and goodness in persons, end quote. And Edward Vasek says, quote, love is an affective, affirming participation in the goodness of a being. Love is an emotional, affirming participation in the dynamic tendency of an object to realize its fullness. Close quote. That's how philosophers talk, right? They like to talk about the subject and the object and all of that and dynamic tendencies. Actually, that's a little psychological dynamic tendencies. But basically, to put this into... Uh, lay English, Edward Vasek is saying, in order to love, there's got to be this, um, yes, an emotional, which we just covered, right? But also an affirming participation in this way that helps the other person realize his or her full potential, real brings her or him into a better way of being, the best way of being. That's what love is, according to Edward Vasek. All right, so that affirmation, it happens at two levels. One level is the basic level of human dignity that's shared by all persons, right? But I want to talk about the second level of affirmation. It's about the uniqueness of the person. When you love your neighbor, you really see your neighbor as a person, as an individual. Jules Toner has this great quote, I love you because you are you. He's not saying, I love you because you are made in the image and likeness of God. That's that first level of human dignity that's shared by everybody, right? He's not saying, I love you because you are a son or daughter of God. That's true of everybody. He's saying, he's, he's focusing on the second level of affirmation. I love you because you are you. I'm loving you in your you-ness, not just because you're another person sort of another generic person. We need to affirm at both levels. And this affirmation implies acceptance of the other. It implies knowledge of the other. It doesn't mean that you're endorsing anybody's bad habits or vices or anything like that. But we're not picking and choosing just the attractive bits to connect with. This affirmation 
requires a freedom, a freedom to get outside of myself and into the phenomenological world of the other person. But what happens in trauma is that we turn inward in self-protection. It's all about where is the safety? Where is the security? How can I escape the danger? I'm not letting anyone in. I'm feeling disconnected in order to protect myself. Oftentimes there's this dorsal vagal response where I shut down. That's the freeze response, the deer in the headlights response. There's an emotional constriction, an emotional shutdown. You know what happens with that? What happens to our heart? Let's go back to what St. Thomas Aquinas said in the Summa, right? Consequently, the freezing or hardening of the heart is a disposition incompatible with love. It's understandable why we do it, because we're trying to survive. We're in survival mode when we do that. But survival mode isn't a loving mode. Not when we're talking about all that dysregulation inside. Now, we'll get into some particulars about this a little later. You can still make acts of charity even when you're really dysregulated. But I'm talking about how do we set up conditions inside that most foster us having the ability to affirm others. If I'm feeling really fragile, really vulnerable, if I'm not resilient, it makes it so hard to take the risks It makes it so hard to put myself out there when I feel raw and that you could just injure me, that you could just destroy me. And, you know, how affirming is it if people are really struggling with the irritability and hostility, the depression, the lethargy, you know, that is so often part of the sequelae of trauma, the helplessness, right? So many times... There's no positive emotions for people that are struggling with trauma. They don't feel very good. The affirmation doesn't feel like it has an affective or emotional component to it. So it can feel wooden or hollow or insincere to the other person. You know, so often in the sequelae of trauma, there's these racing thoughts. They're so distracting. How can I attend to you? How can I affirm you if I can't attune to you? It's like my house is on fire inside. How can I go over to your house and bake cookies with you when my own house is on fire? And one of the things that's seen over and over again in trauma is that there can be argumentative behavior. There can be social withdrawal, relational apathy. There can be all this avoidance. There can be all this ruminating about evil in the, in the world. How does that impact our capacity to affirm the other person in a sincere way, in a way that carries with it that emotional component that we just talked about? And then identity issues, right? If I affirm you, will I see myself in a bad light because of my shame? You know, affirmation involves a positive evaluation of the other And if I'm positively evaluating the other, it could be so tempting to see myself negatively. When we're fragmented inside, and that is a primary characteristic of trauma, it's fragmenting inside. If we're fragmented inside, how do we give our whole selves? Because Jewel Toner 
says that radical love is, quote, giving self. For it is myself who am in the loved one by my love, not nearly my possessions or even my thoughts, my wit, my joy, my wisdom, my strength. It is I myself, end quote. This radical love that he talks about is the giving of the whole self. And he goes on to say, quote, loving someone in depth means loving from the lover's most personal self with sincerity, with intensity, with endurance to affectively affirm this unique person in a response informed by full detailed knowledge, which catches the delicate shadings of his profoundest attitudes, moods, likes, and dislikes, ideals, fears, hopes, capabilities, weaknesses, etc., That's from his book, The Experience of Love, page 160. It's not some sort of disinterested, dry, detached, sterile, clinical charity. The affirmation has to be real and it has to come from all of me. If I'm going to affirm you and for it to stick, it's got to come from all of me. Not just a few bits of me or parts of me that would like to do a nice good deed It's more than that. So those are the first two. Love is affective. Love is affirming. What's the third one? Love is responsive. Right? So love is an active response for the well-being of the other. It's about participating in the promotion of the highest good for the other, the potential for the other to reach his or her full humanity. How can I help you to flourish? How can I help you towards your highest good? Self-sacrifice comes in here and responsiveness also implies an attunement to the other, a resonance, an understanding that helps us to respond well. And it's not just any kind of responsiveness. It's the ability to be aware of and to respond effectively to the needs of my neighbor, not just the physical needs, not just the needs for food and clothing and shelter. Those are important. But what so many people are starving for, starving, I don't use that word lightly, starving for are these attachment needs to be met. So many people are not going around with misdirected or dangerous loves because they're struggling with basic human needs for food, shelter, clothing, drinking water. That's happening in some places. And definitely we need to be, we need to be meeting those needs for those that are homeless or those that are in third world situations or those that are in war-torn countries. Yeah, that does still happen. And there's no shortage of that. But in the United States, in Canada, in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, where most of my listeners are, that's not going on on a large-scale basis. What is going on on a large-scale basis are these attachment needs not being met. And why? A lot of it has to do with trauma. That's what's so, that's what's so, what's the word? I I can't even come up with the word. So inimical, so insidious, insidious. That's what's so insidious about trauma is that it closes us off to the very things that we would need to overcome the trauma. It's so self-defeating if we go with our natural inclinations to protect, to guard, to shield, right? to not respond to others out of love. Radical love, according to Jules Toner, the Jesuit, 
is this. Radical love is experience as being in accord with the loved one, vibrating as it were, in harmony with the beloved's act of being, and so with the whole melody of the beloved's life. It is a welcoming of the loved one into the lover's self and his life world as fitting there, making a harmony with the lover's being and life. Two persons in harmony. That's what Jules Toner is talking about. The responsivity, the resonance. Love can't just be bottled up inside, right? How many times have I heard clients say that their mother said to them about their father, oh, your dad loves you so much, he just doesn't know how to express it. I hate hearing that because I don't think it's true. If love isn't expressed, if there's not resonance, if there's not responsiveness, if there's not affirmation, there's not love there. A lot of times that's the mother giving the father a pass or it can cut the other way, the father giving the mother a pass. Oh, I just have this deep love for my children, but I don't know how to express it, so I don't express it. Well, that's not love. I'm just going to be straight up with you. That is not love. There may be desires there and good intentions, but that is not love in action. John 3 verse 18 says, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Right? So John here is telling us, let us love not in word and speech, but in truth and action. He's saying it can't just be words, right? This bottled up love that, you know, this bottled up alleged love that some parents have for their children doesn't get expressed. That's not even, that's not even hitting the first part of it, the word or speech, let alone the truth or action. So this idea that there can be this unexpressed love between parents or children or between husband and wife, that's not love. Love that's not shared, love that's not relational, it's not love. Now, for some, that's going to land really hard. For some, that's going to really land really hard. We deal with the tough issues here. I know that can be hard to hear because that's a comforting fantasy sometimes when we're little, that there's this great wellspring of love, right? It helps us to get through the day to believe that daddy really loves me or that mommy really loves me, but they just can't express it. That can be really comforting. But the question is, is it true? Brene Brown, in Rising Strong, her 2015 book, said that of all the things that trauma takes away from us, the worst is our willingness or even our ability to be vulnerable. There's a reclaiming that has to happen. And Madeline LaEngel, in her 1980 book, Walking on Water, said, quote, when we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. To be alive is to be vulnerable. All these efforts in the wake of trauma to protect ourselves, do they really work? Do they work for you? When you really moved into self-protection, when you got so self-absorbed, when you made sure you weren't going to get hurt again, did that really keep you safe? Did it? It's a counterfeit of safety and security. We're not going to get safe and secure by detaching from everybody else. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves says, quote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken, end quote. 
part of the reason why trauma hurts so much is because we were loving, we were open, we were vulnerable, and look at what happened to us. Look at what happened to us. Look what came down on us. It's not surprising why so many people close off, they harden their hearts, they freeze up, they shut down, right? Some of that's just, a lot of that is just bodily. It's automatic, right? The question is, do we go with it? Or do we assume that we're just at the mercy of the trauma response? We're not at the mercy of the trauma response. I'm going to talk about that more at the end of the podcast today. There are choices that we can make. But our will is also limited. We don't have omnipotence of will, even within the small sphere of our own bodies. Or it's, it's not an either-or thing. It's not total helplessness or total power. It's in between. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, We must remember that love reveals itself not by words or phrases, but by actions and experience. It is love which speaks here. And if anyone, and if anyone wished to understand it, let him first love. All right, well, what happens? What happens to our responsivity in loving with trauma, right? What happens when we're overwhelmed? We're shocked, right? What happens when we're overcome with fear and apprehension? What happens when there's so much anxiety and sadness and depression and grief and helplessness and despair? Especially what happens with those mood swings. You know what I'm talking about? The mood swings that happen in the aftermath of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mood swings. We can be swept away by our own experience. We're, if we're swept away by our own experience, how are we going to be responsive to others? If we're struggling with anhedonia, right, the difficulty experiencing positive emotions, how are we going to be able to respond to others' joy if we can't find any in our own life? If we're caught up in apathy, right, the shutdown, how are we going to connect and be responsive to others? How are we going to connect with them emotionally? How are we going to respond to them with affirmation? How are we going to be responsive to what they're struggling with? And if we have anything unresolved within us, any unresolved trauma within us, if we start sensing that in the other person, all kinds of protective mechanisms kick in. Bessel van der Kolk, in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, said, when something reminds traumatized people of the past, their right brain reacts as if the traumatic event were happening in the present. But because their left brain is not working very well, they may not be aware that they are re-experiencing and reenacting the past. They are just furious, terrified, enraged, ashamed, or frozen. Well, that doesn't set us up well to be responsive to the other person. That doesn't set us up well for that responsivity that is the third characteristic of loving another person. You know, and then you throw in difficulty concentrating. It makes us hard to even focus on the other person. There's confusion. There's guardedness. We're protecting against vulnerability. You know, this questioning of why me? Why did this happen to me? We can't involve anybody else in that when we're all wrapped up in that. We can't enter into anybody else's phenomenological world and be responsive to them. 
And you add things like startle responses and arguing and social withdrawal and avoidance, reduced activity levels, I'm not doing anything. And then you've got the existential concerns, you know, like I'm permanently damaged. How could I ever respond to you in love? Why would you even want me? Because I am a wreck. I'm a hot mess or a cold mess. And so much of this can also be unconscious. We might not even be aware of it, depending on how integrated our systems are and how in touch we are with the parts that carry these burdens. And if we're fragmented, which again is a hallmark of trauma, fragmented inside, then how do I give a consistent, complete, unified response to the other? I might give a whole series of partial responses that are incomplete or contradictory, and that begins to feel weird and insincere to the other person. Love requires our whole being. Father Jules Toner, he says, quote, in the full concrete experience of love, our whole being, spirit and flesh is involved. Cognitive acts, feelings and affections, freedom, bodily reactions, all these are influencing each other and all are continually fluctuating in such a way as to change the structure and intensity of the experience. End quote. What does he mean? I wish that these philosophers would write quotes that are better suited for presenting in podcasts. I really do, right? Because in a podcast, you can't sit down and look at all these long words because you're hearing them, right? You have to go ahead and go with the flow. But let me try to break it down. He's basically saying all of us needs to be present in responding to the other, right? All of us is involved. Feelings, affections, cognition, freedom, our bodily reactions, And this is all dynamic. Now, I don't want to overstate the case here. I don't want to to argue that you have to be in perfect psychological and emotional health in order to love another person or to be responsive to another person. There is so much room for for, for, for this being partial, right? But I care about you and I want you to have your highest level of human perfection that you can achieve. So I'm going to tell you, yeah, this, the more complete we can be, the more integrated we can be, the more responsive we can be. I don't know how many times I've heard mothers or fathers of large families. I know I need it, Dr. Peter, but I, you know, I cannot get away from my children for that amount of time. I mean, we're talking about an hour a week plus travel time. I just, I'm just not willing to, I'm like, wait a minute, how fractured are you inside? Like, what's it like when you're with your children? I want to try to reframe that because time invested in this integration and in this capacity for you to really know and love yourself is going to make your capacity for loving so much greater if you can overcome the trauma. And in fact, we all have trauma. We all have attachment injuries. We all, none of us comes through this life unscathed. Yes, there's a wide degree of variability in the types of trauma and the intensity of trauma, but nobody walks through this life and doesn't get hurt. Some folks have horrific histories, complex trauma, and they work through it and they're in a great place. And some people have experienced less trauma and have gotten totally sucked up in it. 
the response can vary widely to the same event. Responsivity, that's the third of the five characteristics. We have love being affective, we have love being affirming, we have love being responsive. Now we're moving on to love being unitive. Bernard Brady says the fruit of love is unity. Love unites. It's the very nature of love to bring together. And he also says when you love, you step out of yourself and you experience the other. There's still a separateness here. We're not talking about a blending or a fusion or a loss of identity, but you are no longer just you in yourself. You've entered into the space of another person and you've allowed the other person to enter into your space. Agape pulls for this unity even with strangers. And this we know from the mystics, right? When they talk about contemplation, when they talk about loving union with God, they're talking about the unitive aspect of love. Jules Toner says radical love is not a tendency affection, but a being affection by which I am in union with and present with the loved one. Again, the whole of me, all of me. What happens with trauma? What happens when we are caught up in the sequelae of some traumatic event that's unresolved within us? Well, on the emotional realm, there's all this instability. There's all this inconsistency. There's all this unpredictability. It makes it hard for either the person, for the other person to trust you. And those preoccupations that trauma generates pulls you inside. We're trying to lick our own wounds. We're guarding again. We're hiding. St. Augustine says, if a man loves himself on his own account, he does not turn himself toward God, but being turned inward toward himself, he does not care for anything immutable. He's not looking for the absolute safety and security that we can have in our God. And you know what? It doesn't matter so much the why. People always talk about their intentions. Well, I didn't mean for this to happen. I don't mean for my heart to be cold. I don't mean to be turned away. The why doesn't matter nearly so much. It doesn't matter why we turn away from God so much or why we turn away from others. The effect is the same. The effect is the same. You know, that's why sin doesn't involve necessarily malice. It's not like we have to rub our hands together and cackle <laughs> and plan evil, right? That's not a central part of most sinning. Sinning is missing the mark. Sinning is a misdirected love. It's pursuing a lesser good instead of a greater good. It's not so much about our good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It doesn't matter so much in the final analysis why our hearts become cold and distant and hard. If we refuse to love, for whatever reason, we are separating ourselves from God who is love himself. That's why I want people to recover from trauma. That's why that's my life's work.
So evil comes from loving some good thing inordinately. It's seeking some good. St. Thomas Aquinas says we always seek a perceived good. I did a blog post on this. You can check it out. All the all these weekly email reflections I've put up on my website now, and it's called Dangerous Love. It's from June 22nd, 2022. The good thing might be the means that parts of us are seeking to try to provide us a sense of safety and security, to try to meet those primary attachment needs, to feel seen, known, heard, and understood. In that blog post from June 22nd, 2022, I go through different examples of how people are sinning with good intentions, trying to get needs met. You can go to soulsandhearts.com backslash blog to get to the blogs. It's also in the header on the main page. Back to unity. Love is unitive. When trust is lost, traumatized people feel that they belong more to the dead than to the living. Judith Herman from Trauma and Recovery. When there's a fear of overwhelming suffering, when they're shut down, how can we unite with other people? We get protective. We defend ourselves. We begin to believe that love is full of conflict. I'm reminded of the Pat Benatar song from 1983, Love is a Battlefield. You know, and the music video that goes with that song is all about the conflict with her father, right? The story that plays out is all about the conflict with her father and also conflict with others, others who were seeking to use her as a sexual object. Distorted images of what the good is, seeking dangerous loves, disordered loves. And again, this distraction, the rumination, the racing thoughts, those interfere with our capacity to attune and to unite with the others. Sometimes there's just so much noise inside. You know what I'm talking about? All that noise inside after trauma. So much internal noise, it can make it difficult to resonate with the other person, to really understand the other, to unite with the other. So much distraction after trauma is about finding safety and protection. There's this cognitive restlessness. And then if there's dissociation, if there's these internal disconnects, and then if there's dissociation, if there's all this severe internal disconnection, other people experience that as off-putting. Right? Have you ever been with someone who is spacing out, who's zoning out when you're trying to talk with them? How unitive did that feel? How connected did you feel with that person who is responding to internal experiences, internal stimuli, right? There's no unity there. And then with trauma, often there's blaming. There's this discharging of anger and aggression. Parts so want to be heard, so want to be healed. And the desperation that different parts of us have can lead to boundary crossings or boundary violations, attempts to use another person to meet intense needs for attachment. There doesn't have to be a conscious effort to exploit the other, but exploitation can happen anyway. It doesn't have to be malice there. And again, shame comes in. If I'm overwhelmed with shame 
because of unresolved trauma, why would I want to connect with you? Why would I want to infect you with that shame? Right? If I don't know who I am, it makes it really complicated to be in relationship with you. And if you don't know who you are, it makes it really complicated to be in relationship with me. And the fragmentation again, right? If I'm not trying to unite with you, with my whole self, well, then it's just parts of me that are doing that. What parts of me are doing that and why, right? So often in trauma, there's a perceived need for disconnection in order to not be overwhelmed by emotion. In the unity, you can't give what you don't have. And this dissociation can be so disruptive. There can be identity alteration, which is the sense of being markedly different than you were before. There can be identity confusion, which is a sense of confusion about who you really are. I need to know who I am and I need to know who you are in order to know who we are together in relationship. So it makes sense that this is the fourth one. Love is unitive. It follows from the first three. Love is affective. It's emotional. Love is affirming and love is responsive, right? That sets the stage for the unity. And that brings us to the fifth one. Love is steadfast. God's love endures. Psalm 89 verses 1 to 2. I will sing of thy steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim thy faithfulness to all generations, for thy steadfast love was established forever. People want predictability, and steadfastness requires resilience. If you're going to be steadfast, you've got to be able to roll with the punches in a relationship. Any close relationship is going to have conflicts and difficulties. You know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. Steadfastness requires resilience to roll with the punches. And so often when there's trauma, we either go into chaos or rigidity. That's what Dan Siegel was talking about in episode 89. You know, those two shores that we crash into when we're experiencing trauma. Chaos, where we're just overwhelmed with intensity or rigidity. And sometimes we go rigid in order to avoid the chaos. But in that rigidity, there's also a brittleness, a fragility. And the fragility in a system that is overwhelmed or that is struggling with trauma, that fragility is a real obstacle to the resilience necessary to be steadfast in the relationship, not to quit, not to walk away from loving the other person. When you've got those mood swings in trauma, man, those parts are just coming up and reacting and there's a lot of intensity and the way that emotions are shifting sometimes really rapidly, each part with its own intense emotions. And there's this sort of way that they're taking over your control panel like an inside out. The helplessness and the despair. The emotional shutdown. Again, that dorsal vagal response where we freeze, where we shut down. 
Or when we get overwhelmed, we move into hyperarousal, right? We go into this reactivation. We don't realize that the trauma is not being reenacted in the present moment, as Bessel van der Kolk was telling us. And there can be so much disappointment in the other person, right? You're not helping me. I'm trying to help you. You're not helping me. It can lead to frustration and rejection and giving up on the relationship. No longer loving anymore. And then the cognitive effects, right? Intrusive thoughts, intrusive memories. They can so distract us from the steadfastness that we need in our loving of the other person. Amnesia can happen, right? Gaps in memories. They can last for minutes to years in severe cases. Depersonalization, feeling disconnected from your body or your thoughts. Derealization, feeling disconnected from the world around you. That interrupts our capacity to steadfastly be in a loving relationship for the other. And in our bodies, hyperarousal, you know, moving into fight or flight, hypoarousal, dropping into that freeze response. Alcohol and drug use, right? Brene Brown, in her book, Daring Greatly, She said, for me, vulnerability led to anxiety, which led to shame, which led to disconnection, which led to Bud Light. You know, really frank. She's really open about that. If different parts are taking us over at different times, it's hard for us to be steadfast in relationship. We we start to act in ways that are unpredictable to the other person. And it leads to an instability in our identity that makes it hard to be consistent in the loving. So those are the five characteristics of love. Love is affective or emotional. Love is affirmative. Love is affirming. Love is responsive. Love is unitive. Love is steadfast. I want to repeat this quote by Bernard Brady. We talked about it in the last episode, but he says, love does not die because of hate, but because of apathy. The death of love is often preceded by the denial of the basic dignity of the other. The death of love happens when we reject and instead of affirm the other's special personal and unique goodness. The death of love is encouraged when we ignore the other's needs and wants while prioritizing our own wants. The death of love occurs when we pursue discord, division, disassociation, and distance in place of unity. Okay. This is true so far as it goes, but what Bernard Brady misses and what so many philosophers and theologians miss is what's driving this. It's not just prioritizing our own wants. It's prioritizing our own needs. He drops that word out of there in his quote on page 273. He says, the death of love is encouraged when we ignore the other's needs and wants while prioritizing our own wants. But also, it's our own needs, right? The death of love is sin, and malice is not at all necessary for love to die. Apathy doesn't have malice in it. It can't have malice in it. Apathy can't have malice in it because malice has an emotional component of hating the other person. What happens in apathy is that the other person doesn't even register really in your consciousness. He or she just doesn't matter. He or she just doesn't exist for you. 
We don't have to actively deny the basic dignity of the other person. We just have to not notice it, not attend to it. We don't have to actively reject the other's special and unique goodness. We just have to not notice it, not attend to it. Why? Often because we're so self-absorbed. We're self-absorbed. We're dealing with the civil war that's going on inside of us. We don't have to actively ignore the other's needs and wants. We just have to be preoccupied with our own trauma and its effects. This is why it's not optional to work through your trauma if you're a Catholic. It's not optional. You don't. You can't say, no, I'm just going to stay here in this really self-absorbed way because the trauma is reducing your capacity and your inclination to reach out to others in love, to live out that second great commandment and also to live out that first great commandment. And that's what I think is the great tragedy of trauma. Now, most people don't talk about it this way. I mean, most of the time, philosophers and theologians and clergy, they don't even talk about trauma that much. They don't even talk about it that much. And it's kind of understandable. They don't, they're not trained in that. So I'm not expecting that we're going to get great, you know, really um, sophisticated and nuanced understandings of the moral implications of loving on trauma. This is a, an attempt to try to get that word out there. And one of the things that I'm a little worried about at this point is that you might be like, oh my goodness, I'm not loving. You know, and it contributes to a sense of shame. It contributes to a sense of, oh, see how terrible I am, right? That's not my intention. I'm not trying to activate shame in people. I am trying to motivate folks that this isn't just a cross you have to bear, right? In some sort of spiritual bypassing way. Yeah, there may be aspects of a cross that you have to bear in all of this. I'm sure there are, but to have your capacity to love be compromised by trauma, that is not a cross that you have to bear. Why? Romans 8, 28. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Everything that happens, including those traumatic events, including those terrible circumstances in your life, God works for good in everything. There's no asterisk there and then a little footnote that says, except for that terrible thing that happened to you 25 years ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago. Julian of Norwich said, quote, and because of the tender love which our good Lord has for all who will be saved, he comforts readily and sweetly, meaning this. It is true that sin is the cause of all this pain, but all will be well and every kind of thing will be well. Sin is the cause of all this pain. Sin is what ultimately is the cause of all trauma. Even if it's uh, earthquakes and so forth. There weren't any earthquakes before Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That actually brought in all kinds of disruptions in the natural realm too. Tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and all of that. None of that existed. Sin brings in all of the trauma into the world. Now, I've been careful to say that our capacity to love gets compromised by trauma, not love itself. 
Because there's a ratio here, right? In Luke 21, verses 1 to 4, we hear Luke write, Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. I really believe that love is a ratio. It's a ratio to the good that you willed and that you sacrificed to the other over the capacity that you had, right? So what you actually did goes in the numerator and what you could have done goes into the denominator. It's a little math thing, right? The numerator is the top number and the denominator is the bottom number in case it's been, you know, several decades since you've studied fractions. The numerator is what you've done. The denominator is what you could have done. All of this stuff about trauma impacts the denominator. It impacts your capacity. It also makes it harder for the numerator to do those other things. But look at what our Lord says. He's not just looking at the numerator. He's not just looking at the total amount of who put what in the treasury because there's going to be some rich merchants that are putting in gold coins. He sees a widow putting in two small copper coins, she has contributed not out of her abundance. She gave out of her poverty. She put in all she had to live on. Do you see the completeness there? That's what our Lord's looking for. I think it's incredibly difficult for us to judge anyone else accurately and to judge our own selves accurately because our Lord knows how difficult some of this is. He knows our natural inclinations to protect ourselves. He knows how we wrap ourselves up in our own selves. He experienced this himself in his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup from me. He had a human will, but not my will be done, but thine. He understands our weakness. He understands our trauma response. If you want to look at a man who was traumatized, look at our Lord in his passion. We don't have a God that's light years away and doesn't understand what's going on here. And he will help us. He will help us if we let him in. We need to allow him to love us first. We need to allow him to love us first. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Psychologist Peter Levine writes, quote, trauma is hell on earth. Trauma is hell on earth. But trauma resolved is a gift from the gods. Peter Levine, trauma therapist, understood that there is so much good that can come from the resolution of the trauma. Your capacity to love, if you walk through the fire of your trauma, is going to be so much greater than if you never had the experience. Love is proved by suffering. We are going to have to suffer. Mother Teresa was huge about the need to be able to suffer in love in relationships. Think about that. Think about somebody who doesn't, who hasn't really suffered. 
you know, what's their capacity for suffering? It's going to be fairly low. What's their capacity then to be able to love? Fairly low. God only allows things to happen. Even those terrible traumas in your life only allows those to happen because of the great good he intends to draw from it. And man, that's hard to believe sometimes. Man, that is hard to believe. There are parts of us that will rebel against that, that will condemn God, that will put God in the dock. I get letters, I get emails about this sort of stuff on a regular basis about people expressing to me how God has been cruel to them. And it's understandable given the way that parts are construing their experience, how different parts of us are trying to make sense out of what happened. We're not going to get there just with natural reason alone. We're not going to be able to, by the unaided light of human reason, to just get ourselves through logic and induction and deduction to God as a loving father. That had to come through divine revelation. But the consistent witness of the saints, and these saints were experts in experiencing trauma. The consistent witness of the saints is that it helped them love God and love their neighbor. And they would not have given up that trauma for anything in the world. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no wiggle room in what St. Paul writes in sacred scripture in his letter to the Romans that, oh, this bad thing that happened to me in second grade, that's just going to separate me from the love of God. Or this rape, or this combat experience, or this terrible medical tragedy, or the loss of my spouse, or the loss of my child. None of that can come between you and the love of Christ. The only way that can happen is if we let it. If we let it, we don't have to seek it. We just have to let it. We just let, we just have to let our hearts get hardened, frozen. And man, there's a pull toward that in trauma. There's a huge pull toward that in trauma. You know what I'm talking about. There's a pull to withdraw, to close down, to defend, to no longer enter into a loving relationship with God or our neighbor or ourselves for that matter. Kent Keith wrote the Paradoxical Commandments. Mother Teresa had these pinned up in one of her convents. I'm not going to read them all, but just a few. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. 
If you do good, people will, will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. So where do we go from here, right? Well, if you want to love, you first have to be loved and it really helps to know you're loved. We have to take that on faith. We can know it by faith, but to have a sense that you're loved. Tolerating being loved. So many people assume that we just naturally want to be loved. And that's true if you're an infant. And that's true if you haven't experienced as a you know young child any, any traumatic experiences yet. But what happens is that we all have attachment injuries. We all get relational wounds. We all experience traumas. And so this openness to love, that that become there's a real cost associated with that you know people know that for love to be real it has to be given freely but it's not received freely and we're going to talk about that in our next episode we're going to also be getting into ordered self-love this is one of the areas of so much confusion what does it mean to love yourself in an ordered way, especially when there's trauma, especially when there's trauma. We're going to be getting into that in a future episode in this series as well. All right. So check out our blogs. Now, those of you that have signed up and get the weekly email reflections, you already, you already have gotten these, but June 15th, there was a blog on seven ways to understand sin. Sin is breaking the law, sin is a burden, sin is a debt, sin is missing the mark, sin is a violation of your conscience, sin is breaking or harming relationships, and sin is the failure to love in an ordered way or the anti-love. June 22nd, blog post on dangerous love where we really get into St. Augustine's description of sin as a disordered or misdirected love. And I share how when that misdirected love is oriented toward getting our attachment needs met, it's not only misdirected love. It's dangerous love. And then June 29th, I wrote about conflicting loves inside you. And that's where I really get into some of these internal family systems ideas about the multiplicity and unity of the self. Check those out. Soulsandhearts.com backslash blog. You can take a look at those. We've got them up now. And then also sign up for our weekly email reflections. They'll come straight to your inbox every Wednesday. You can do that at soulsandhearts.com and then press the little button on the homepage for get Dr. Peter's weekly email reflections. 
Email me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. You can call me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594, any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time for conversation hours. We can talk about anything that you're hearing in the podcast or anything that's coming up in the blogs or the weekly email reflections. Let others know about this podcast. Put the word out there. There's somebody you know that's dealing with trauma. Get them on board with the rest of us with this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. We're on the, all the major podcast players, Interior Integration for Catholics. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Audible, Podbean, Podchaser, CastBox, Overcast, Podcast Addicts, all of them. We're on all of them, right? You can also get all the podcasts at soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC, which stands for Interior Integration for Catholics. All right, you have a deadline. You have until July 10th. July 10th. Resilient Catholics community, this is where we are on this adventure of being loved and loving. This is where we are softening our hearts, melting our hearts. That's what the Resilient Catholics community is all about. Check it out, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We deal with human formation issues. We deal with how to grow into a greater love. How do we love God better? How do we love God completely? All of our parts, every fiber of our being, all of our emotions, all our thoughts, all of our inner experience, all of those characteristics of love. How do we love God in an emotional way, that affective way? How are we affirming to God through loving other people? How do we respond to God, right? How do we unite with God? And how are we steadfast in all of that? We're going to be learning about all those things. Resilience, the resilient Catholics community. It's about being gentle, but firm with yourself. It's about integration. We do this work experientially. So many experiential exercises. Again, it's informed by internal family systems, but grounded in an authentic Catholic understanding of the human person. So I want you to really consider joining us for that challenge. We've got spots left. We can take people through the end of July 10th. So you've got a few days. You can call me. 317-567-9594 or email me. If you've got questions, I'm happy to talk with you about it. There's a whole process of discernment about it. So applying is not the same as joining. There's still weeks for you to decide about it once you apply, right? We go through this whole process with the initial measures kits. We talk about it. There's conversations. So, you know, it's just about starting the process. And that whole process, you'll learn so much just by applying, Check it out, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. Know that I'm keeping you in my prayers. And let's invoke our patroness and our patron together. Say the response. Don't just let me say it. Say it with me, right? Our Lady, our Mother, untire of knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Pray for us.